It is 6 o'clock. <laughs> this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, WBAI.org on the web. You're listening to Wake Up Call. So the world now asks additional questions. How will Egypt's protest movement and Mubarak stepping down impact the region? What will it mean for Israel, Gaza, Syria, Jordan and beyond? We explore this question. Who is the leadership with this protest movement that governments would negotiate with? To explore all of this, we're joined by Dr. Stuart Shah, Professor Emeritus of Middle East and North African History at Brooklyn College and co-author of The Middle East and Islamic World Reader. David Rubin, the former mayor of Israeli settlement Shiloh, and uh, David Porter, uh, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at SUNY Empire State College. Gentlemen, good morning to you all. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, David Porter, let me kick off with you. This has been the big question that we've heard asked so much over the weekend, and that is who would... Um, who would be being negotiated with since from uh, speculators' points of view, there is no quote-unquote one leader from this protest, from this revolution. Your, your thoughts on this? Well, actually, it's one of the things that really disturbed me in the media coverage about these events over the last several weeks, that uh, again and again you heard particular uh, spokespeople, talking heads of, uh, saying that they couldn't find any credible leaders that uh, the regime could negotiate with. And I thought that that was an incredibly elitist kind of orientation, because, in fact, an upheaval like this is really the product of years and years of people's individual and group decisions from the local level on up to no longer submit to authority, but even in the face of the a repressive machinery of the government and the torture of dissidents to actually speak out, to assert themselves at the local level and gradually at regional and national levels. So I think that those are the real leaders of the revolution, and they should be acknowledged as such. And you wrote the piece, uh, the, the headline of which was the triumph of leaders, leaderless revolutions, and they are, in fact, how this kind of change truly um, um, emerges. Uh, the what next question uh, persists, though, one of the areas uh, that it persists around is uh, uh, Israel and Gaza and the border between those two nations, what that may mean. Uh, David Rubin, your thoughts and concerns? Well, there is great concern in Israel right now about that. Uh, there, was a, there was a terrorist attack on, uh, on a gas line uh, running from Egypt to Israel uh, just, just uh, about a week ago. Uh, there, there is a lot of concern, uh, and Israel is very concerned that what might be created out of this is another terrorist, uh, another terrorist uh, state on its borders. You, you have to remember, everyone is looking at this with rose-colored glasses, that there is a, a new democracy being created. Well, there is a difference between free elections and democracy. Uh, freedom of expression, freedom of worship, understanding of uh, the meaning of tolerance, these are things that take many, many years to be developed. Uh, obviously, the United States being a prime example of that. It's not something that, that is born overnight. And the fact is that if you look at the Egyptian population, and there was a Pew Opinion survey in June 2010, which said that 84% of the population support executing any Muslim who changes his religion. 
Uh, 82% of Egyptians support executing adulterers by stoning, and 77% support whipping and cutting the hands of thieves, cutting off the hands of thieves. Uh, These figures tell me that the Muslim Brotherhood is a lot stronger in Egypt than we think. And and just as in the Iranian Revolution in 1979, uh, we saw the the young people who are who are fighting for democracy in the streets, uh, while the Islamic Revolution is waiting in the in the wings to see what they can do. And th- this is something that I address in my book, The Islamic Tsunami. Uh, that that there, there is there is a movement led by the Iranians uh, to to bring down every single non-Islamic uh, leader in the Middle East uh, toward their eventual goal of taking over the world. This, this is the way that, that I see it going. I look at Lebanon where the Hezbollah terrorist organization took over in free elections. I look at, at Gaza where the Hamas terrorist organization took over in free elections. Uh, it, this is what what we're concerned about in Israel. Uh, except, of course, in Egypt, I mean, you, they were bringing down a three-decade regime in which they hadn't been what anybody could define as free and fair elections. Dr. Stuart Shah, let me turn to you. Your, your reaction and then your thought, thoughts and concerns about this what next question. I have some problems with what the last speaker said. Because That's David Rubin. David Rubin. Uh, the explosion of the pipeline... Initially, we were told by the Egyptian government that it was a terrorist attack. And then an hour or two later, they rescinded that, and they said that it was caused by a gas leak, which they would repair as soon as possible. Uh, so that's just uh, fear-mongering and adding to the distortion of the facts. And everything that David Rubin said uh, is meant to scare the hell out of people. Uh, it sounds like the counter-revolution during the French Revolution. David Rubin, let Dr. Shah finish. You weren't interrupted. Let Dr. Shah finish. Okay. I'd like to answer. I didn't interrupt you. I listened very... Go lightly. ahead, Dr. Shah. Dr. Shah, go ahead. <clears throat> The revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt were created by young people uh, who were Internet savvy. Uh, They started organizing in 2005 and really picked up steam in 2008. They adapted their movement to nonviolent means. They read Gandhi. They read Gene Sharp, as the New York Times reported today, in the United States on how to overthrow dictators using nonviolent means. Uh, and that gave them an enormous amount of power. And they've been around for a long time. Al Jazeera just had a brilliant documentary about the April 6th movement in which most of these bloggers were integrated, and this is in Egypt, and they were exchanging information with Tunisia for quite some time, even before the revolution broke out in Tunisia. So this has been planned for some time. It was initiated by people 
who had nothing to do with the Muslim Brotherhood. At the height of the revolution, the youth wing of the Muslim Brotherhood joined and uh, participated and gave expertise and set up divisions of labor that were very significant. But it's a mixed bag. I live in Morocco. There is a moderate Islamic party in parliament. Uh, they've been domesticated. I personally don't like their moral preachings, but they're within the system. In Turkey, the same kind of uh, party system exists in, with the, in which Islamic elements uh, now control the government, and they've been moderated. Uh, there are all kinds of Islams, as I always argue, and one of them is radical Islam. It is not necessarily radical Islam that will take over either in Tunisia or in Egypt. And then there's an additional question. You know, um, um, Christianity arguably did the same that, uh, David Rubin, you argue you're concerned that Islam may do. But to what extent is there real um, um, evidence that the concerns that you highlight around the the, uh, 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 Muslim Brotherhood contradicted again and again and again by experts in Egypt as them not having this role that is consistently raised as being more significant than is being consistently contradicted about it. it there's a concern that it becomes fear-mongering. How do you respond to that? Right. Well, I, I heard the charges, and uh, I have to tell you, uh, we in Israel, in a, in a country the size of Delaware, surrounded by hostile nations, uh, don't have the luxury of, of playing around with semantics. The reality is that the Muslim Brotherhood has a, a statement of principles which they have never abrogated. It's always been consistent. Uh, that, that, and it says the following, Allah is our objective. The Quran is our constitution. Uh, the prophet, meaning Muhammad, who had 31 wives, and unlimited concubines, and and was terribly abusive towards women, uh, that he is our leader. And the struggle, meaning, with struggle doesn't mean internal spiritual struggle, it means violent struggle in most cases in the Quran, uh, that the struggle is our way, and death for the sake of Allah is the highest of our aspirations. And in practice, they support jihad or holy war against non-Muslims. They support terrorism against Israel and against the United States. And in an explanatory memorandum in 1991, the Muslim Brotherhood wrote that they support a civilization jihadist process, and I'm quoting, in North America to achieve the objective of eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within. So this is what they believe, and this is what they support in practice. Okay, so I'm going to ask both David Porter and Dr. Stuart Shah to respond to that. But first I'm going to say, okay, um, even if they believe all of those things, once again, there is no evidence that they are about to take over in Egypt when there's been consistent conversation that, yes, like so many other parties who have a a range of um, um, uh, opinions around how a country should be led, they are part of a democratic process, just as there are so many arguably objectionable elements of parties in the United States. That's part of what democracy um, is. But once again, the, the role that they would play has been consistently 
contradicted by those who arguably are within the Egyptian reality that they will not and do not play the role that you imply that they will play. Hence the consistent charge against voices like yours that this is essentially fear-mongering around Islam that is not really rooted in uh, an evidentiary uh, basis. David Porter, your thoughts? Yes, I, I very much uh, agree with uh, Stuart Char, the remarks that he made. Um, I would just point out also that one of the reasons behind the radicalization of Islamism, where it occurs, and my own uh, special area of interest is Algeria, where in fact that, that process did happen, um, is precisely because the regime uh, with outside support of major foreign powers has consistently ignored the realities at the base of social life. That is the same kinds of complaints that people were articulating so well in Egypt over the last several weeks. The high levels of unemployment, the lack of future for uh, graduates, young graduates, uh, the lack of adequate housing, the, the labor grievances, the, uh, the poor status of women, all of these kinds of things are, are very much alive and motivating and causing the rage at the base. And when a government does not address those kinds of things and when outside powers are willing to reinforce the power of those regimes, it's not surprising that people look for any kind of channel by which to express their rage. And it so happens that uh, these regimes have to acknowledge Islam. Uh, that is the religion of the of the great majority of the population, and they can't just shut it down. So it is a, a channel which is available for the expression of rage and potential radicalization. So I think a lot of that potential uh, that David Rubin is talking about is basically uh, understood uh, by the neglect of the population by the local regimes. And uh, Dr. Stuart Shah, I want to broaden it so we don't get stuck on this conversation about the Muslim um, Brotherhood regarding the, uh, the the kind of the what next question for the region, for countries like um, um, Israel, but also for Palestine and what this may mean for them as they watch what's happened in Tunisia and now in Egypt. Well, the Palestinian Authority is in disarray uh, because of the uh, Palestinian leaks that... Uh, were presented to the world a couple of weeks ago, and the cabinet has been dissolved. A new cabinet is supposed to be uh, put in place today, and nobody knows whether there would be uh, an acceptance of that. But I have to say something, that there's been a great deal of money flowing into the West Bank uh, of the occupied territories, and people have prospered in the last few years, and it hasn't been reported on a lot. Uh, there's a great deal of contentment uh, among, uh, starting with lower middle classes and above. Uh, and therefore, I'm not so sure that the West Bank uh, will follow the lead of the other Arabs. And there's a lot of experts are saying we have to be very careful because each Arab uh, state or each Arab entity is uh, has its own specific problems, and we have to deal with that specificity. Uh, 
the problems that lie ahead are uh, in Algeria, where 10,000 people came out yesterday. The police force in presence in Algiers was 30,000, so there were three policemen for every demonstrator. And, of course, the demonstrations were contained because of that number. But if the numbers grow to 50, 100, 200,000, they're going to have to call out the army. And the army runs the show in Algeria, and they have a lot to lose if there's a revolution. So there may be a lot of bloodshed there, as there was during the 10-year civil war, in which over 200,000 people lost their lives. The Algerians, therefore, might be more cautious than people imagine because of they went through what they went through over those 10 years. Jordan is shaking at this moment. There have been uh, demonstrations in the tens of thousands. Yemen uh, has brought out 20 to 30,000 people on the streets. And uh, the president of Yemen has decided he's not going to run again, which means he wants to be there until 2013, but the demonstrators want him to leave immediately. So there's a major conflict going on there. And some people were killed yesterday in the demonstration. So the ante has been raised, and I expect more people out on the street there as well. Uh, Morocco is relatively quiet where I live. The Minister of Interior prohibited demonstrations in front of the Tunisian embassy last week when the uprising uh, crescendoed. And in Egypt, uh, in the case of Egypt, they allowed a demonstration uh, in the center of town and in front of the Egyptian embassy but with the proviso that they do not call for regime change in Morocco. And the demonstrators, who are only about 150 strong, downtown Rabat, uh, stuck with that line, and they called for basic reform, change of constitution, etc., but not for the overthrow of the monarchy. But we are seeing an uprising in and around the um, the um, region, even if not to the level or to the degree that we've seen in uh, Egypt or um, um, Tunisia, and Tunisia is still an ongoing... It's a new world. Scenario. We're living in the information age where uh, things that are happening now could not have happened 10 years ago. Uh, the new technology has empowered young people. They're taking the lead. They're very savvy. Uh, they're going out, doing their reading, studying, reaching out to other movements as far away as Serbia, for example, and uh, coming up with new patterns of resistance that haven't been seen using Facebook, YouTube, uh, and other social media sites. Even when they were shut down, it didn't really matter because the crescendo had been reached. And what they did in Egypt was make a list list of all the mosques. And uh, personally, two or three people went to each mosque before each major demonstration when they no longer had the social media and telephones, handed out leaflets, spoke to people, got them mobilized, and they came down to pray at Tahrir Square. Uh, there's nothing wrong with people praying. Uh, 
there are lots of religious people here. That doesn't mean that they're Islamic radicals. They're normal Egyptians, normal Tunisians, etc., etc. And, I mean, the road to freedom across every nation has been, to some extent, bloody, irrespective of the nation in which that has um, happened. Closing thoughts from all of you. Uh, except that uh, the bloodiness was limited in this case because the people who were fomenting the revolution wanted to be nonviolent and tried to be nonviolent as much as they could. Mm. As many people wanted to be nonviolent, but if once they were uh, attacked and in defense against themselves... Uh, That's blood, the definition of nonviolence. You expect violence in retaliation. And so closing thoughts for um, everybody in terms of what's next for um, um, Egypt and how we may continue to see ripple effects uh, in, and pick one country in the surrounding area that is a particular uh, focus for you all. David Rubin, let me start with you. Okay, well, as, as one who lives in Israel, uh, that's, that, that's where my main concern is in the Middle East. And uh, I think that's something that's being missed here in this entire discussion is, is that uh, Hamas and Fatah are the, are the, two, the two main parties in and if we can call them that, in the Palestinian Authority. And in 2005, there was a push to have elections uh, by the Bush administration in, in the Palestinian territories. Uh, so Hamas uh, won that election. Uh, and, uh, and from that point on, there was a dispute between Hamas and Fatah over which organization, which terrorist organization is going to rule. And basically, the Hamas and Fatah had each ruled by dictatorship in their respective territories, the Hamas in Gaza and Fatah in Judea and Samaria, which much of the world calls the West Bank. Uh, now, Fatah is not as overly Islamic, uh, but certainly they're, they're not democratic. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas has been in power ever since Arafat died. So we're talking many years already. And we're not talking about Democrats here. And Israel has no choice but to be very concerned about the events going on in Egypt and Lebanon, uh, where where the Islamic radicals are using democracy to take over. Uh, as I quoted those figures before, about 77% supporting whipping and cutting off the hands of thieves. The, and, and then and then uh, the other commentators on this show are saying, well, these people aren't violent, but they support violence. They have used the tactic of Takiya, which is deception, which is a, a very common Islamic tactic, which is only in uh, Shia which, Islam, which, not in which Shia is supported Islam, by, by Sharia. Yes, it's supported by Sharia law, and and it and it says that that you can be deceptive and you can lie in order to accomplish the goals of Islam. And and what what we see uh, in the in the streets of Egypt uh, it appears to be uh, dem democracy in the making. But I predict that it will not be democracy in the make making, and you will see Islamic radicals eventually taking control in Egypt, whether through democracy or through violent means. David Porter. Yes, um, I, I am very concerned about uh, the potential for what has already been accomplished in Egypt uh, being confiscated again by the ruling military. Uh, we've already seen uh, that there's been a declaration by the army leaders that the uh, martial law will not necessarily be lifted right away. They will lift it uh, when the time is ripe, according to their own 
estimates, and they've also apparently just uh, announced that they plan to ban all trade union meetings and uh, prevent any strikes from occurring. And, in fact, the worker activism was a very major part of this whole mobilization uh, towards the defeat of Mubarak. So it's one thing to replace a dictator, and that's a very mighty accomplishment by the Egyptian people. It really has to be praised and is very inspiring. But in fact, the basis of the regime with the military, the secret police, uh, the entrenched uh, bureaucracy, these all remain. And I think it takes very careful watching now. And hopefully those people who were very much mobilized during the last several weeks will be very vigilant and find ways to maintain their own activism and and uh, control their own destiny. Closing thoughts from you, um, Dr. Shah, 30 seconds. Uh, Fridays are being put aside as uh, major demonstration days in Egypt, and I expect that the pressure will be kept on the army through those mechanisms young people there are quite savvy, and I have a lot of confidence in them. I've met many of them in Tunisia, where I lived, and uh, they are as good as anybody on earth. My uh, problem is I think that Israel and Saudi Arabia will be bypassed by events if they don't adjust to new realities hearing the same old broken record over and over again about the Islamists are coming, the Islamists are coming, only uh, makes them frightened and keeps extremists in power in places like uh, Israel. Uh, maybe that's the political motivation for doing so. Otherwise, if they're more flexible, if they could meet the new challenges, the regime in power may fall. Uh, and therefore, there's something in what David Rubin is saying, which is the official line of the government, and the official line, I think, is meant to keep them in power.